Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christmas. We pray that tonight we'll be encouraged and stimulated and challenged as we're confronted again by uh, this man from a long time ago, the one who you say lives and reigns as the Lord of all. Please help us to uh, grasp who he is and to uh, deal with him rightly. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know what you think about Christmas, but I think it's a very strange and confusing time uh, at the best of times. Uh, it's got strange weather. You know, we've had some of the hottest days of the year this week, and then tomorrow it's going to be cold and miserable. Uh, there you go, like it is most Christmas days for some reason. It's just drizzly and cold. Uh, uh, and none of it's like the snow that the Christmas cards promise. I don't know what's going on there. Um, it produces strange and confusing behaviour. Uh, it's not called the silly season for nothing. People go crazy with decorations and lights and competing with the neighbours. Uh, there's partying and there's more food than anyone can possibly manage. I mean, I've just been at a Christmas party before walking over here and people brought that much meat. It's just sitting there in slabs and everyone's going, I can't do it. I'm done. <laughs> there's spontaneous singing with strangers I mean, why would you gather to sing weird songs that you don't do at any other time of year? Uh, and, and that's on the harmless end and fun and the silliness end of things. But others are drinking themselves into oblivion this weekend. Uh, others are bankrupting themselves and their families for one day of feasting and fun. does very strange things to people. But Christmas is particularly strange because it's so confusing in terms of what it's about. There's this strange contrast between Christianity, which kind of invented Christmas and the kind of carnival mentality which has overtaken the community. I mean, it must be completely bizarre for those who are new to our nation from other cultures to see what's going on and, and put yourselves in their shoes and try and work out what Christmas is about. There's been all these exchanges for the real thing for fakes. There's been the exchange of the humility and poverty of the stable for the wealth and indulgence of selfishness and, and gift-giving. There's been an exchange of the quietness of Bethlehem for the noise and chaos of MacArthur Square. Uh, there's the seriousness of the incarnation has been swapped with the silliness of the party spirit and the party attitude. You know, the blinking coloured lights have, have swapped in for the star of Bethlehem. Uh, uh, angels have been exchanged for flying reindeer. Mary and Joseph have been swapped for North uh, Pole elves. It's kind of hard to look through it all and, and see what the reality is. And who's Jesus been swapped for? Because he's no longer the centre of attention, is he? He's been swapped for a big fat red man with a beard who magically breaks into people's houses through chimneys they don't even have. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, you know, he eats and drinks your food and then leaves you with cheap plastic junk at the foot of the tree. Who is this man? And why are we so happy about his coming? And the confusion really reached epic proportions for me on Friday when I read an article written by a leader of the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, that's the Anglican Church in America, who wrote this, There are few causes to which I am more passionately committed than that of Santa Claus. Santa Claus deserves not just any place in the church, but the highest place of honour where he should be enthroned as the long-bearded Ancient of Days, the Divine and Holy One whom we call God. He's not done. I mean, this is serious stuff. Santa Claus is God the Son. 
You better watch out. You better not pout. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows whether you've been bad or good. He slips into the secrets of the heart as easy as he slips down the chimney. Santa Claus is God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose hand is a pack bursting at its seams with the gifts of his creation. Santa Claus is God the Holy Spirit. This is the best one. Uh, who comes with the sound of gentle laughter. <laughs> with the shape like a bowl full of jelly. I'm not quite sure I've ever pictured as the Holy Spirit as a bowl full of jelly. but And he comes in the night to sow the seeds of good humour. Santa Claus indeed deserves the exalted and enthroned place in the church for he is God the Son, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What? I mean, it's just nonsense. It's bizarre. You can't get more convoluted than that. Uh, but it's not only completely nonsensical, it's totally blasphemous. And so my intention tonight is to be as straightforward as I possibly can, just tell you the real story of the birth of Jesus so you can make no mistake about its genuine significance and why it matters so much. And I want to do it not by taking you to uh, the birth stories which we're so familiar with, but to this theological passage in Philippians chapter 2, which is really summarising what the heart of Christmas is all about. And guess what? It's not about a big red man. Uh, It's not about Santa. It's about Jesus. Jesus, whose name means God saves. That's what the angel introduced him as in Matthew chapter 1. We read that. Uh, Whose title is the Christ, means the Messiah, the King, the one that God promised right through thousands of years of history in the Old Testament, the one who would come to rule. He is Jesus, God saves, who has come to rule as God's King. And in just a few short sentences, he explained who he is and why it is that he came here and why it's so important that each of us come to terms with him. And I want to point out just four spectacular, magnificent truths about Jesus from this short little passage, just from verse 5 to verse 11. Four points to cut through all the confusion of Christmas. So number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's who he is. You see it there in verse 6, which identifies who he is and and where he was before he came. Uh, Be like Jesus, have the attitude of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. He has the nature of God. He has the being of God. And it's the consistent message of the Bible that Jesus is God. You remember the angel pronounced in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. Uh, Anyone remember what that means from that reading? Emmanuel means God is with us. This is God that's turned up. He was God, he is God, and he always will be God. Uh, In the beginning, writes John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Hebrews 1, we read that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And lest you think that that was just the church making stuff up, that was Jesus' own understanding, his self-understanding, as he went around and did his miracles and raised people from the dead and taught. Uh, you remember the Jews condemned him in John 5:18 because he was making himself equal with God. And there was no mistaking it because that's precisely what he was doing, all the titles of God from the Old Testament. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. Who's the good shepherd? That's God. Psalm 23. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am everything. I am God. And that's who he is. He possesses all the attributes of God, all the characteristics that belong to God. That is, Jesus 
is not just a wise teacher. He's not just a moral guide. He's not even a good man who had something nice to share with us. He's not just a prophet. He is God himself. And we've got to come to terms with that fact. Because you think about all that that implies, that Jesus is God. If, If Jesus is in nature God, then he is the creator. He made everything. He made you. He is your creator. And if you think about having a creator, someone who made you, he is the sustainer of all things. He is the one to whom all things on heaven and earth belong. He is the one who everyone, including you, owes their ongoing devoted loyalty. He is the one who is omnipotent in whose hands we should be casting our lives. He is the one who is all wise and all good, whose ways are true and right, even if the world denies them till they're blue in the face and can't stand what he's got to say on sexuality or, or any other matter. He is the one who is pure and who is full of light and life. In him is, is the only true joy and fulfilment that you can have in this life and in eternity. And he is the judge that we're all going to face in our death. He is majestic. Have you come to terms with him? Because that's who he is. He is God. But though he is God, the second thing this passage points out is that Jesus abandoned his sovereign position. He left heaven, which was rightfully his. He gave it up. He gave up his glory to come, well, come here. Back to verse 6. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now that is mind-blowing. It's fascinating for a whole range of reasons. You think, well, how can God take on human flesh? Well, the fact that he's God means he can do what he darn well likes. So that explains that. But um, Just think about the word grasped. He, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, grasped can mean to see something, to, to snatch something, to take hold of it and pull it away from someone else. Or it can mean to hang on to something, to cling on for dear life, to clutch at it as if everything depended on it. And, and guess what? Jesus did neither of those things. For him, equality with God wasn't something that he needed to snatch away from anyone. It wasn't something you needed to seize. It wasn't something you needed to rip away from someone else's hands that it legitimately belonged to because it was already his by nature. But it was also something he didn't feel the need to stand on his rights and demand in order to throw his weight around as God. I'm God, you're not there. He wasn't clutching onto divinity with a, with a death grip like we do with our toys at Christmas. You can't have them all. Like you watch the kids, you know, and one gets one, oh, can I have it? No! <laughs> he wasn't doing that. And in both those ways, he was the complete opposite to us human beings because we are graspers. We, we long for power. We fight to take hold of it. And when we've got it, there's almost nothing on earth which would make us give it up willingly. In fact, isn't that the cause of all the fights and quarrels amongst us, whether it's at an international level or in you know, national politics, uh, in, at the social level, in our workplaces, even in our friendships and our families. I mean, you think about what you're doing tomorrow. You're probably going to a Christmas lunch somewhere. Uh, is that most of us? Who, who's not going to have a Christmas party with their family 
uh, tomorrow. Okay, only one or two people. Blessed are you. Because <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you get together with your family? I mean, you think, I mean, you kind of, you think, in the abstract, you think, oh, yeah, yummy food, fun, hanging out, tinsel and stuff. But what's the reality? Fighting, we're tired, cranky. Um, you know, wh- why do we have the difficult Aunt Marys and Uncle Bobs who are cantankerous old farts? You know, why do we have screaming children who bash each other over the head with their toys on Christmas afternoon rather than sharing and playing together and celebrating each other's good fortunes and the blessing it is that, that Mum gave them such a wonderful gift? Why do adult brothers and sisters... Uh, I'm not saying this is my family, but uh, why do we fight over the food preparations and the table decorations, and who sits where, and whose place it's going to be at. Why are we like that? Because we want to be right. We want everyone to fall in line with our ways of thinking, to do what we say, because don't they understand? My way works, and it would be best for everyone if they just did everything my way. We grab, we clutch, we grasp. We want to be in charge. We want the world to revolve around us. And at that level of Christmas afternoon, that, that's tragic, isn't it, that so many families experience that. But at the international level, it's horrific as we start lobbing bombs at one another. But at the spiritual level, it is absolute insanity and the greatest of evil because we do exactly the same to God as we do to our own families. We fight him in everything. For control. We're glad that he's not round most of the time. He can turn up you know, at Christmas maybe. But because deep down we want to be our own God, not have someone else in that place. We feel like we're the ones that life should be all about and he should be at our beck and call and not the other way around. I feel like I should be the one who gets to decide what I do with my life, what I'll grow up to be, what I'll do with my spare time, blow him, blow anyone else. And so we grasp for his place in our own lives and we won't let go when we think we have it. But not Jesus. Jesus who is by nature and being God. He didn't stand on his rights. He didn't think, well, here I am in my glory, kicking back, looking over heaven. Ah, the worship of angels, it's amazing, it's all for me. <laughs> you know, I'm lapping it all up, soaking in the praise. There's nothing that'll ever make me give that up. He wasn't like that at all. And he wasn't just willing to give it all up. He, he gave it all up. And what did he give it up for? To become one of us, to become human, as this passage says. And that's the other claim of the Bible, this other spectacular truth about Jesus, that though he is fully God, he became fully, properly human. He gave up all the glory of heaven, all the joy of his Father's presence, all the wonder of it to join us here in the mess of this world, in all the weakness of human life. And he didn't come down and think, well, how do I make the best of it? I know, Emperor of Rome, that's who I'll come as. He didn't come as the President of the United States of America. Who'd want that job? <laughs> he he, he didn't come as only one important or, you know, he didn't come as uh, Bill Gates, you know, super rich. He came as a man from a poor family in a backwater town, walking in dusty streets, working hard with his hands to make a living as a carpenter. 
living a life completely divested of his incomprehensible, limitless, heavenly treasures. Isaiah 53 says this, this is 800 years before Jesus came. A prophecy said there was no beauty in him that men should desire him. He was despised, he was rejected. And we know as the, Old, as the New Testament unfolds that he was hated and he was treated with scorn and contempt. He was shamed, he was spat upon, he was beaten, he gave up his honour, he gave up all his riches. But why did he do it? Why would he give up all of heaven's riches and glory and, and trade it all in for rejection? Was it because he didn't know what was going on down here and he just had to check in? Was he bored? You know, if you've got too much stuff, you get bored with it. He just thought, I'll try to see how the other half lives. Was he just wondering what we were doing, whether we were treating each other? No, he knew all that. He did it, it says here, the third thing that's pointed out, to become the servant of all. And specifically to be the servant of all in his death by dying. And if you thought it was totally bizarre already that he came at all and traded all the glory in for coming here, the reason, this reason he came might make you think he's completely lost his marbles. You see it there in verse 7 and 8. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how far he came down. He didn't just come down uh, to earth from heaven. He descended even further into servitude and his life was a life of service. Uh, he said of himself in Mark 10.45, I came not to be served but to serve. And how did he intend to serve in the greatest way? By giving his life, by dying. That's how selfless he was as a servant. And not just dying any death but dying on the cross, the most grisly and shameful death that has ever been uh, invented in human history. There's a, in the Old Testament, there's a, God says there's a curse on anyone who's hung from a tree and yet there he was hanging from the tree. His life ended as it began, naked, helpless like a baby. He only gets to drink if someone else gives him a drink. That's where the journey of Christmas heads. And he did it for us, to serve us. You think, who would you give your life for? Is there anyone you think, I would die if I had to, I don't want to, but you know, if I had to, I would die for them. I think maybe in a rush of blood you might sacrifice yourself for your wife or your husband Maybe your children, if, you know, and it'd be only in the spur of the moment, if there was a car bearing down and you thought, oh, it's them or me, you know, I reckon I'd rush out there. Maybe you'd give a kidney for your sister, but would you give both of them? Would you give someone your heart? And I'm not talking emotionally, I'm giving them your heart. You know, I'm, this thing beating in chest, keeping your life, who would you donate that to? That they might live though you would die. Anyone? Would you do it for people who are your enemies? Who hated you? 
who'd spent their lives trying to usurp your position in their lives, people who'd grasped and strove and demanded and who wouldn't let go of anything because that's what he did. And he did it because he loved us so very much and because that's what was required to save us. Because what's rightly due for our selfishness and pride, for our grasping and clutching on and our pushing God out of the picture, uh, what's due for our sin, as the Bible describes, it is nothing less than death followed by hell. That's our spiritual just desserts. But what has happened in his majestic love and mercy is that he sacrificed himself in order to take the full wrath of God against human sin and evil upon himself and to pay for us so that we might come back to God forgiven, washed clean, start again. Dying that grisly death, he was going to bear an infinite amount of sin in just a few hours. He's going to feel the wrath of God, the likes of which we could never comprehend. That is his love. That is his mercy. That is his unfathomable generosity. Have you come to terms with him? Have you come to terms with what he's done for you? As the wonderful Christmas carol sing in a couple of minutes says, Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. But there's one final point in this journey, one further destination. And while so far it's been down, 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 there's an up, there's a victory in the end because he ascended as the supreme Lord of all. It's in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It starts with a therefore. Therefore, because of what's just been said, because of what he did, because he gave up heaven, because he came as a human, because he died on the cross for us. Therefore, this is what God did. This is the reason. This is the end point. There's something greater even than the love he had for us that he was trying to achieve. Because now Jesus sits in heavenly, exalted glory, reigning as the King of kings over all things from his throne, all to the glory of his Father in heaven. And we don't have to guess that that's what happened. We don't have to assume that that's what happened. We don't have to play make-believe that that's what happened. It wasn't a fable like a, a big, fat red, big fat red guy with a, a beard who we enjoy playing pretend with or he's not like you know a, a lantern-nosed reindeer. This is real, adult, actual history. And we know it because God raised him from the dead. He came back to life. He came out of the tomb. He was seen by many. He ate with many. He talked with his people after it happened. He was truly dead and truly alive. And this is why God raised him from the dead as a sign of God's satisfaction over his death. And then God exalted him to his own right hand and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. What, you think, what, what name was Jesus given after he'd already been named Jesus? Uh, well, it's the name Lord. It's the title. 
It's not the name Jesus, that's an earthly name. People name their sons Jesus or Jesus all the time. It's just Joshua in Greek. But that's not the name that's above every name. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is the final authority. That's the name that's above every name. And in case you might think that he is Lord for some and not for all, that he's the Lord for Christians alone, you see that at the end again? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue from the greatest and most important and wonderful of angels in heaven you know, to the seven billion humans that inhabit this planet at this moment to, to the greats who have ever lived, to the poorest and lowliest of people who've ever been, to even those languishing in hell for their sins under his wrath. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If you do it in this life, what happens? Well, Romans 10, Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, saved from hell. Save from sin, save from judgment. Better to confess it now than go on confessing it forever in heaven than to go on confessing it in bitterness and remorse in hell. Because every tongue will confess it. And God's given you the opportunity even today to make this confession now. Not the confession of a creed parroting ancient words, but the confession of your heart in truth giving yourself to him, saying, you are my Lord. I want you. I want everything you've done for me. You gave everything for me. Thank you. If you make it now, you'll be making it joyfully forever and he'll exalt you to his own throne. You'll be a joint heir of heaven with him and share all his riches. See, that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about the lights. It's not about the tinsel. It's not about elves and reindeer. It's certainly not about the blasphemy of Santa being God with his bowl of jelly tummy like the Holy Spirit. That's just nonsense blasphemy. It is about Jesus, Jesus who is God, who lived in glory, wearing the king's robe and then taking it off and swapping it for the beggar's robes. He's God, the judge, rising from the bench and going to the gallows as the criminal. He is God impoverishing himself beggaring himself, exposing himself to rejection and to evil spite, never sparing himself until he makes it all the way to the cross on Jerusalem's hill where he'll die in utter humiliation, selflessly doing it for us. He is God, ascended and exalted and reigning as Lord of the living and the dead, who every knee will bow to someday when he is revealed in his glory. Confess him as Lord. Receive the salvation he offers and you'll go on doing that forever in glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and incisiveness when you speak, cutting through all the rubbish to what really matters. We thank you for the truth about our Saviour These are wonderful days of Christmas to go back and think deeply about the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for this wonderful evening that we've had together. Our hearts are full to overflowing. We thank you for the the carols and the music that rings in our ears and our hearts leap for joy at. 
but it doesn't mean anything unless we confess that he is the Lord. And so may there be no soul in the hearing of this voice of mine tonight who will wait to confess him as Lord in the fires of hell when it will be too late to receive his mercy. May you be gracious and open every heart here to you to confess you as Lord today and forever here on earth that we may do it forever in heaven. We thank you for your mercy that Jesus would give up all to come to save us by his death. And we thank you for his humility and love and service. And we pray that they might change our hearts and our lives. That you might stop us being those who grasp after power. That you might help us to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That we might be humble, that we might be the servants of others to your glory. For we know that those who humble themselves will be exalted by you. And so help us to humble ourselves before you today and every day. That Jesus might be exalted as our Lord to your glory. Amen.